Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Those maps will stand for 10 years. That could mean a decade of fairly drawn districts where folks have an equal voice in their government. That is, of course, Barack Obama. Or it could mean a decade of unfair partisan gerrymandering. The former president, weirdly, is obsessed with redistricting. Most former presidents, when they leave office, focus on big global problems. Bill Clinton has his Clinton Global Initiative. George W. Bush is focused on spreading democracy abroad. And Obama, when he's not kite surfing, has his share of grand, world-changing ventures. But in the United States, his big pet project is, well, it's a little obscure, redistricting and gerrymandering. There's a reason for this. Back in 2010, the Democrats were wiped out during Barack Obama's first midterm election. In the rush of activity, sometimes uh, we lose track of the ways that we connected uh, with folks uh, that got us here in the first place. When the states went through redistricting for the new decade, the GOP had the upper hand and Dems got crushed because of extreme partisan gerrymandering. Now, I, I'm not recommending for every future president that they take a shellacking like, they, like I did last night. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are easier ways to learn these lessons. So late in his presidency, after another midterm wipeout in 2014, Obama got religion on how important redistricting is. He and his good friend and former attorney general, Eric Holder, helped create the National Democratic Redistricting Committee to make sure Dems would be prepared for this decade's fight. And if you know one thing about redistricting this year, it's that Democrats are doing much, much better than expected. And that's largely because of this Obama-Holder brainchild, the NDRC. And the person in charge of that? Her name is Kelly Burton. They started the redistricting process wanting to take the House back and then hold it for the decade. They called it a durable majority for the decade. And we've stymied their ability to do that. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizzo. She's the president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. She met me on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, which is one of her favorite spots in D.C., because I came here when I was a senior. And on that trip, it was solidified for me that I really wanted to work in, in politics. You caught the bug I, on I that did trip. Catch, yeah. I did catch the bug. And I will never forget that moment. It was a beautiful day to talk about who will be pulling the levers of political power in our democracy for years to come. All right, so I know that you guys have been more successful this cycle than a lot of people predicted, but... The Democrats are probably going to lose the House. It's looking like a serious wave is building. Um, so if you guys get wiped out, 
isn't that a sign that you guys actually weren't very successful and that all of your work was wasted? Well, I think that um, when you think about redistricting, you need to disentangle the maps themselves from the dynamic of a particular cycle. And the thing about the redistricting map being neutral and and basically a wash um, for both parties and close to that median number is that even if Democrats lose the House this cycle, there are enough seats on the map for Democrats to get it back. And that is contrary to what the Republicans wanted. They started the redistricting process wanting to take the House back and then hold it for the decade. We have enough seats with Democratic DNA and enough competitive seats on the board that I think the House map will be competitive for the entire decade. I think if Democrats lose it, we can get it back. And, you know, if, if the Democrats hold it, we got to, um, you know, really fight to hold it. And, and that's exciting because that's where the country's at right now. It's, it partially contradicts something you heard a lot last year uh, and right up until January, which is if Democrats don't pass election reform, um, they're screwed. The next decade, they are going to be locked out of power down uh, from where we're sitting here uh, in, in that capital. And what you're saying is, you know, you guys have done enough good work that there's some resiliency in these seats, as you said, enough DNA in a lot of these seats, more competitive seats, more 50-50 maps, that there's a um, that that's not true, that you've taken away a lot of the structural advantage that Republicans had. Both things are true. So we have taken away the structural advantage, uh, and we do have a competitive House map. And we also need to continue to protect the other elements of voting, which is the ability of, of all voters to vote fairly and to not have you know black voters in line disproportionately because there's not enough resources in their areas. And you know we need to protect the ability to vote early and to vote in a pandemic. And, and those other elements of voter suppression that the Republicans are pushing through in the states, we do have to continue to, to block against that and to make voting easy and accessible and fair. And then when they go vote, they're going to be voting on fair maps. And you need both. And so we do have to continue to, to fight for these, uh, again, these kind of fundamental elements of our democracy. There are a lot of political analysts, someone like Ron Brownstein, who argues that a lot of the structural impediments that Democrats face right now, like redistricting, like the um, anti-small D democratic uh, nature of the of the Senate, you know, the imbalance on the Supreme Court, um, considering the popular vote in, you know, the last uh, six or seven um, presidential elections, various ways in which these structural barriers that are helping Republicans sort of hold back a lot of demographic change in the country that in the long term might not be, not 100% clear that this is true, but might not be beneficial to Republicans. And so is that, the question out of that I want to ask is, is you would think there might be some Republican allies on this redistricting reform, but is the imbalance between which party fair maps benefit at this point in our history so extreme that you just you're not going to have um, a massive uh, like Republican elites getting behind this anytime soon? Well, we'd love to work with Republicans, right? <laughs> I mean, we would love to get votes for Repu- from Republicans. On but is that but what I'm saying? Are these are these, is, is is do you see it as this like structural imbalance that keeps Republicans in power basically at this point? That that's what explains the the difference in 
like Barack Obama caring about yeah. this, but no one of his stature on the Republican side? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting and um, challenging time in our country because we are right now dealing with a one party of our two-party system that is so focused on holding on to power that they are willing to undermine our democracy in order to hold on to that power. And they're willing to break the law to do it, which is what DeSantis did in Florida. We bring lawsuits because the Republicans are breaking the law. And if if they weren't breaking the law and if the maps were fair, we wouldn't have to bring these lawsuits. But alas, here we are. Um, you know, I think North Carolina and Pennsylvania, I would point to as, as good examples. Um, in North Carolina, the uh, Republican legislature, fun fact, the Democratic governor does not have a role in North Carolina redistricting. It's just the legislature. So huh. He doesn't have to um, sign it or anything? He doesn't have to sign it. It yeah. doesn't go through him at all. So it's functionally a Republican trifecta state, if Got you will, it. a Republican-controlled state. And that legislature pushed through a gerrymandered map um, that essentially tried to do what they did last cycle and, and really pack the Democrats in, and, you know, largely um, focused on black voters across the state, pack them into a, a, just a handful of districts and then give the Republicans the rest of the state. Um, and we sued them and, and the um, went, it went all the way through the process and the court said, you can't do that. And now it's a 50-50 map. Similarly, in Pennsylvania, um, the Republican legislature tried to push forward a, a gerrymandered map and Tom Wolf vetoed it. And so it went to what's called impasse, which means the process just deadlocked. And so in that case, the courts do step in. And the court stepped in. They um, took consideration of a bunch of maps from a bunch of different parties, 13 maps, in fact. And they chose the map that was submitted by our plaintiffs as the most fair map. And it is. It's a 50-50 map in PA, which is the state of PA. And this only applies to states under VRA? Or well, different states have laws on the books, um, and so you, a lot of our lawsuits this year have actually been um, state-based lawsuits. I see. And our North Carolina lawsuit that I just referenced is, was a, a lawsuit br- that we brought based on state law. Uh, you have some states like Florida, where um, the Florida actually has a constitutional amendment that provides guidance on what the Florida map should look like. We filed a lawsuit against the DeSantis map because it clearly violates that state law. This is like. The- the really crazy one that DeSantis, really that the legislature, yes. that basically DeSantis said the legislature's not going far enough. And he's like, no, 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 I've got my own. Uh, exactly. The, um, <laughs> I mean, I think the way to understand what happened in Florida is that it, it is almost a microcosm of the battle that's happening in the Republican Party right now, because the holistic congressional map is the most fair and neutral map that this country has had in decades. Across the country or in Florida? A- across the country. Yeah. And Florida was one of the last states that to finish their map. And Steve Bannon and the right put a lot of pressure on DeSantis yeah. to not let the quote-unquote Democrats win, which is crazy because the Republicans control everything in Florida. But you you saw the state Senate in Florida put forward a rational least change map. They wanted to just, you know, pass a map. They didn't want to go to court. They didn't want to be sued. They wanted to just do the right thing and, and move forward on a least change map. And DeSantis made an active choice to cater to the base and to push the map to the extreme. And we think completely violate the law in doing so um, because he thought of it as a win for his party in reaction to, you know, what is, um, I think, a, a, a neutral, fair map across Stupid the question because I haven't paid super close attention to how that was pushed through, but th- his map was then pushed through the legislature or the governor has some kind of 
uh, right. It's, it's unprecedented the way that it happened. So it's um, it's it's not it's it's okay that it doesn't make total sense because <laughs> it is in fact historic and unprecedented. Because typically the legislature draws the map and the governor signs it, um, but in this case, DeSantis just introduced the map um, and and pushed it forward, and the legislature relinquished and just passed it. So he had his own staff draw the map, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a little bit about national legislation and what you guys would like to see, um, if anything. No, we pushed really hard and we were very supportive of the John Lewis um, Freedom to Vote Act because part of the bill would have put regulations on redistricting and would have um, outlawed partisan gerrymandering, which we want. We want the maps, again, we want the maps to be fair. We really want the rules to be set for both sides so that you know the boundaries from which you can and should draw maps. That would be incredibly helpful. And in fact, the Supreme Court, when they had a chance to rule on partisan gerrymandering and they chose not to, fine, this is the wrong call on their part, but put that aside for two seconds. Um, They said in the ruling, John Roberts said, hey, Congress, you should do this. This is your job. Can you please regulate partisan gerrymandering? The Supreme Court says that all the time. They They do. clearly are not familiar with Congress. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) But the Democrats in Congress were like, sure, got it. And they did. And they put forward, you know, that's John. That's a, that's HR R one. HR one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So HR one is the the more um, substantive. Includes the more substantive redistricting reform. Yes, and, then, and it com- iterated yes. into what ultimately became the John Lewis Freedom to Vote Act um, in right. the Senate. In the Senate with also, Manchin and Collins in, exactly. and, and Klobuchar. But, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But that um, final version also included the redistricting reform. It did. It did. Yeah. yeah. And what's the so what's the gist of that? Like, what is it? What would that do? What's like the big idea there? It outlaws partisan gerrymandering. It says you can't partisan gerrymander, and then it gives how do you define metrics? That? Okay. That's what it, it does in the law. It, it gives does. metrics. But for does how it, so define it, it. does it create like a California style commission everywhere? As a um, option, it says the that states it, get to decide. Yes, it, you don't. It doesn't mandate commissions. Yeah, would that be unconstitutional or something, or it's it just like you're giving the states these parameters to do redistricting? You're not saying they have to do this. You're not uh, laying out everything. Exactly. And it's an important, you're raising an important point, which is um, that it it was only focused on federal elections on Congress because the The Congress has the ability to legislate federal elections, um, but not legislatures, to your point. So, yes. Um, The Supreme Court is pretty conservative these days, and um, a lot of progressive priorities are not viewed very favorably. In your world, how do most people see the Supreme Court? It's terrifying. I don't, I don't, I don't mean like on row and, and that kind sure. of stuff. But on redistricting, yeah. do you, are they considered, um, from your point of view, extreme, or is it more balanced than some, you know, some of the other issues that progressives really concerned about? I think we are going to see this Supreme Court grapple with the strength of the Voting Rights Act and interpret the sections and the, the um, language and the input the impact of yeah. the Voting Rights Act and how you can use the Voting Rights Act in redistricting I think that the Supreme Court is going to grapple with that and we are in that case that's the Alabama section 2 case and we are very hopeful that the Supreme Court will do the right thing that has been done um, for decades in this country and then uphold the Voting Rights Act um, who are the up for grabs conservative votes in, in a case like that is it Roberts yeah. Um, I th- yeah, I like, think... Who's, who's the Republican appointee that has, from your perspective, the best track record? I don't know that 
we know yet um, in terms of the new Republicans. Uh, we'll have to see how the Alabama case plays out. But, you know, it's an easy one in our mind that this shouldn't be hard, especially the Alabama case. It is a textbook Section 2 case, and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act has been upheld time and time again when it comes to redistricting. You cannot dilute the impact of minority voters, particularly black voters, to elect a candidate of their choice. And that's what the Alabama map does. That's what um, the, the you know lower courts said was wrong. And the merits of that case are very straightforward. How much does gerrymandering have to do with what happened in 2020 when Democrats thought they would be picking up a lot more House seats and um, were disappointed? Was that much more of a just big Trump turnout or was redistricting a big part of that? Well, couple things on that. One is that we did have a few new maps in the 2020 cycle because of lawsuits. So the Pennsylvania map ended up being a 50-50 map. Um, same thing, North Carolina. We achieved... An improvement for Democrats. These are Democratic... An improvement yeah, yeah. for Democrats. Yeah. So I think that the losses would have been even more had we not had some fair maps in those states, uh, which also then you know created a, a good starting point for redistricting this cycle. But overall, I think um, the, the impact of redistricting really comes this cycle. Yeah. with the new maps. Yeah. And and again, we did have a few new maps in... Um, in that was a Trump thing, yeah. though. 2020, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so just to go back, we've got off on a little tangent, but when you're going around and starting the committee and going to donors and being like, this is an important issue, we need to put a lot of money behind this, I imagine a lot of donors are like... Uh, redistricting, like I'm not gonna. I don't want to spend my money on that. I want to like spend it on like a, a cool Senate race, <laughs> someone who I'm gonna know when they're in power. And like, uh, you guys are talking about like maps and good government stuff, and uh, that's you know, was it? Did you have to convince these Democratic donors that this was important? I mean, you always have to convince donors um, on and, and others and voters and the grassroots, right? I mean, we have to make our case, but I think there was a real, we were very welcomed and we had a strategy. We had a strategy to get started and get going and, and to ladder up to redistricting. I mean, we, you know, we were making this case four years before any maps were being drawn. Um, I mean, let's not forget, it took an existential threat from an autocratic president for Democrats to take the House back in 2018. And we did, and that was great, but that's what it took to overcome the structural barrier of gerrymandering. And and the AP did a study in 2018 that Democrats were even like up to 16 seats less than they should have even after 2018 because of the gerrymandering. Like I said, Democrats didn't flip any seats in Ohio, North Carolina, and Wisconsin because of the gerrymandering. So, you know, I and think... And just to explain what people, what, to people what happened, to listeners to what happened in 2018, these districts that had been gerrymandered uh, all the way back in like 10, 2011, exactly. suddenly politics are scrambled. Yep. Donald Trump is the president. It's a midterm election. And all of these Republican voters uh, in the suburbs, tell me if I've got the, the story and the demographics right here, who they thought were these safe Republicans packed into gerrymandered districts, um, suddenly made these uh, districts competitive for Democrats. 
I think it's a combination of factors. Um, and, you know, as someone who's worked in house races for a long time, you can't forget <laughs> about the candidates. So I think the first step is that... Oh, they don't matter. Well, because Trump was president and was really presenting this threat we haven't seen before, I think candidates who typically wouldn't run for Congress ran. They felt like this was their service, it was their duty, yeah. it was their responsibility, and, and they were willing to take that, that leap of faith and take that risk and leave their jobs and do the things that you need candidates to do to run for Congress. And a lot of really terrific candidates did that in 2018. One of the, so one of the stories of how Republicans are drawing maps this time, how are they how are they grappling and thinking about that demographic shift in the in the way they're they're drawing maps? So they're that trying to thing? they're trying to shore up their incumbents. That has been their strategy. So they there's a lot of discussion this time about how the n- total number of competitive districts has decreased. Right. Um, right. With to like thirty to forty. Uh, forty to thirty. Oh, no, oh, you mean now there's thirty to number. forty yeah. competitive seats? Yeah. Yes. Um, exactly. And. The thing to to remember or to know about that is that that's an intentional choice that that was mostly made by Republicans in map drawing, where they have pulled from the competitive bucket of seats and moved those seats into the Republican category intentionally to try to shore up their incumbents. Um, The Texas map is a perfect example of this, where they essentially locked in the number of Democratic members by by packing Democrats into um, the current the you know, same number of districts as we have now. And then they packed Republicans into all of the rest of the districts in the state. And there's no competitive districts in Texas. And as, as you know, Texas was an incredibly vibrant and dynamic and robust part of the map in the last two cycles because of that demographic shift you're talking about, where over the course of the decade, you know, the, right. su- the suburbs are becoming more competitive. Right. Um, you know, the growth of people of color is, is increasing in these states, and that does have an impact on the map. And so that's why by 2018 and 2020, we were seeing Texas competitive House seats. And the Republicans completely took that off the table. um, And now there are zero competitive districts in Texas. And are they doing that more and more by, uh, in the old days, they might add suburbs and exurbs, but but since those are less reliable for them now, they're shoring up some of those districts with rural areas. Is that the, the dynamic that's going on? Yeah, that's part of it. And then the other piece of it is they pack the Democrats. So, for example, yeah. you know, a, a, a member like Colin Allred um, in, you know, outside of Dallas, uh, he was one of those swing seats in Texas the last two cycles. They just packed him a safe seat. So they took those Democrats in Dallas and, and the areas around Dallas and they just put them all into one district, um, which is a way to then dilute the impact of those voters into the neighboring Republican districts. Yeah. All right, so let's pick up the story of um, Democrats exceeding expectations this cycle. Um, uh, what were the what are the ingredients there, and how much is left? How much is left on the board that still needs to be uh, figured sure. out? Well, most of the maps are done, yeah. and that's how we can say with certainty that you know overall, for the most part, it is a neutral map where the overall, like nationally, nationally, yeah, yeah where overall the um, why the do you House, want a neutral map? Why don't you want a map with advantages Democrats? Because we want democracy to work. We're here for but democracy not in every state. Sure, I, yes. I, I'm from New York. That yeah. does not that does not look like a fair map. Well, look. To your point, there's a handful (laughs) of states that are left, but the overall map is being driven by a lot of states, including big states, where the map is done and it is fair. So I think there's this outsized sense that, um, you know, states like New York or Maryland really helped Democrats in the overall map, and now the New York map is changing, and so that's going to change the numbers, and that's just not accurate. The reason that the map is, is, you know, 
basically a wash for both parties, which we consider a victory because the Republicans started off this cycle trying to create, as they said, a durable majority for the decade. So that was their goal, and they have not done that. Whose line was that? a wash. Um, that line came from uh, the RSLC. Um, they're your counterpart, essentially? There's no? two counterparts. There's okay. the RSLC and then the National Republican Redistricting Trust. Um, but the the actual way to look at the map is you have fair maps in states like California and Washington and Virginia and Michigan and, um, you know, just a, 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 in Nevada. And, um, you know, there's a large number of states that are creating the overall um numbers, if you will, that the overall map is fair. And so with these final states that are still, you know, finishing up, it's not going to change the overall makeup of the House that much. So this is like a really important cycle for what you're doing now. And there are a lot of lessons learned. I mean, Obama himself has written and talked about this, you know, and how the shellacking, shellacking, and not just at the time, but in hindsight, and just the legislative seats. And, you know, what are the big lessons for Democrats from that cycle? Well, from the 2012 cycle, which is the the next cycle after 2010, right, was a really important lesson for redistricting because that was the redistricting cycle. So, you know, lose in 2010. Republicans are in power everywhere. They control everything. Do you remember, like, when you say that, do you mean that they used the redistricting power in just an extremely aggressive, no concern about the kind of... um, downside of gerrymandering that people, you know, talk talk about these days. Is that what you mean? Just in terms of they just press their advantage to, you know, pedal to the metal? Yes. And, you know, <laughs> look, so for better, for worse, yeah. right, the way that redistricting was done in a lot of these states yeah. prior to 2011 is that it was incumbent protection. Right. So what would happen is Democratic and Republican incumbents would get together and they would draw maps or they would negotiate on drawing maps um, that was, you know, part of the legislative deal making and that was part of the incumbent protection. That's why you saw things like, you know, a a Senate chamber would draw the Senate map and the House chamber would draw the House map and they would just vote on each other's maps. Or or you would have maps like we saw in California before the commission there where... But Dems and Republicans would have, incumbents would have a a, a deal basically. Exactly. And they would work together on it. They wouldn't try and... Uh, re- draw them the other side out for the for the most part. That was the right. that was what was most common. And and I'm I don't think that's good. I'm not saying that that incumbent protection model was was good at all. I think right. it's, it's not good to do redistricting that way. Redistricting yeah. should be about the people. But the reason I mention it is because when the Republicans had control in 2011, they boxed out everyone. The Democrats they, that changed that changed the that, old kind of old school like. We may be Republicans and Democrats, but we're both in power and we're, we're going to protect each other. That suddenly was like out the window. Right. Repo- exactly. They, the, the new model, in your view, is Republicans maximizing their own number of seats. For their own Dem, power. Dem incumbents be damned. Exactly. And so they drew maps in a lot of states where they put the Democrats into as few districts as possible and then put the Republicans into the rest of the districts. And What that's, drove that change? Uh, it was... The power grab. It was yeah. an intentional effort to hold on to power because they could. And that's our show. This episode was produced by Kara Tabor and Brooke Hayes. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is Politico's executive producer of audio. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.